Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome listeners to another episode of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Patch and with me, ready to kneel before Zod, is my best friend and co-host Aaron. What I do now, I do for the people of Earth, Patrick. <laughs> well, good. I'm glad you do, because, you know, Zod demands it. <laughs> and so do the people listening yes, to the does. show. <laughs> well, this week we continue our coverage of the Big Blue Boy Scout by covering Superman 2 in its original theatrical run, directed by Richard Lester. We say that because there is a cut by the original director, Richard Donner, that's out there. It came out, I think, in 2006. But for this conversation, we'll stick with what most people saw back in 1981. Before we get into our main conversation, complete with one more takeaways, Aaron, I believe you have a promo for us. Yeah, this week we wanted to talk about a new film called Spontaneous. This is a movie, an indie movie, that is based on a popular young adult novel, and it is an outrageous coming-of-age love story about growing up, but also about blowing up. <laughs> it stars Catherine Langford, Charlie Plummer, Yvonne Orji, Haley Law, Rob Hubel, and Piper Perivo, who I will always love and remember fondly as Violet in Coyote Ugly. I actually don't know much about Piper's career after Coyote Ugly, I just will always associate her with that role forever and ever because I love it. So this movie, Patrick, is about students in high school who, right at the start of the film, this happens, one of the kids in the class inexplicably explodes, quite literally, just boom. And Mara, played by Catherine Langford, and Dylan, played by Charlie Plummer, struggle to survive in a world where each moment may be their last. Uh, it's an unexpected romance that blossoms between them, and of course they discover that when tomorrow is no longer promised, they can finally start living for today. Now, I just wanted to ask what you thought about this and tell you I really enjoyed it. So I, I found this to be one of the pleasant surprises of the year for me. It definitely had that Carpe Diem vibe to it, built into a coming-of-age story. I couldn't stop thinking about Dead Poets Society because we've just covered it recently, and of course this movie is nothing like Dead Poets Society other than kind of the same theme, but I had a ton of fun. I thought the performances were really great. I thought the high school story, you know, setting comes with uh, the appropriate musical soundtrack that is really good and, and expected, and that was good. I, I liked the way that this thing that is happening where people just are blowing up seemingly randomly and without any understanding isn't of it's played to be a mystery and it's more of a plot point that drives the real story about how these kids end up relating to each other and how they live their lives and how they focus on living for today versus a story about like oh my god it's sci-fi what's what's this mysterious thing kind of thing going on and so it's really funny it's really sweet i loved it i thought it was great and I was actually happy to be promoing this one. So, you know, what did you think? Did you have a similar response or? I did. Catherine Langford's always going to be a favorite of mine uh, from her days with 13 Reasons Why. So she's going to be the definitive teenage girl, even as she gets older. Watching the movie, I couldn't help but think about The Walking Dead with the concept of this mysterious thing happening 
really is just in the background. It's not the main point of the of the movie. And I found myself from a creative standpoint exploring this notion that you put this weird thing as a backdrop to explore something that I think all high school kids go through, which is what am I going to do after high school? What's my life going to look like after the football games end, after graduation happens, and when I start making choices to either go to college or do something else? Those questions are there. They're just wrapped up in this really hilarious, weird, (laughs) exciting plot point, which is people spontaneously explode. And honestly, Aaron, there were times when it left me kind of feeling tense. I felt like these characters because I didn't know when it was going to happen. The the filmmakers did not telegraph any of the explosions. No. So when you watch this movie, you don't know when and if it's going to happen, much like these characters are feeling. The angst that they're feeling throughout the movie is consistent with what high schoolers feel, their relationship with adults, authority figures, parents, scientists, all of these things are very much relatable at whatever age you grew up in high school, where you saw adults as being the people that gave you the answers, but they weren't the answers to the questions you were asking. And there were a couple of moments where I enjoyed the commentary between dialogue of the students and the teachers where they were essentially calling them out saying, why don't you stop talking at us and start talking to us? Give us some answers or just tell us the truth. That's all we want. Those are questions I remember asking my parents and other teachers saying, stop being a politician. Stop giving me rhetoric. Tell me what I need to do. Tell me what's wrong. And this film does that in a way that I think is incredibly entertaining But underneath the surface, there is this real thematic tone of feeling empathy and feeling like you not feel sorry for these characters, but you really do feel like, man, they just want answers. They just want to feel like they can live and live fully. And I think Catherine Lankford's performance, along with Charlie Plummer, is just beyond adorable. It's absolutely great chemistry. It's very much blunt, to put it mildly. And I like that. I like that they're not playing characters that are your typical high school romance. They're very much unapologetic about who they are, the way in which we get to get introduced to them individually and as a eventual couple is really, really nice. And... I think the cast overall is explosive. <laughs> nice. I wondered, were you saving <laughs> wondered, that? You just, yeah, I was, yeah, I was going to slip that in somewhere. That's pretty good. Well, it, Spontaneous is available on digital and on demand now. Uh, you can go check it out. And we also have four codes to give away, which we will be doing on our social media channels today. Uh, it is October the 12th on a Monday, and we will be posting something. So it, make sure you're following us on Twitter in order to take advantage of that and to enter our giveaway contest. That's at Phelan Film on Twitter, and we'll post the giveaway there. Fantastic, Aaron. Well, it's time for our official conversation of why you actually tuned in. And we'll start with one-word takeaways. These are our spoiler-free thoughts, one word that describes our overall experience with the film. Aaron, let's start with you. 
I want with motivation. This is something that I suppose any movie with heroes and villains could be, uh, you know, explored thematically through and or or I guess I should say, I think that this word is something that would fit for pretty much any movie that, with heroes and villains. But I really enjoy the contrast in motivations that we have for our different characters here. It stood out to me and it drove the narrative of this film in a way that I think made it really enjoyable. We have Clark, who is motivated by his desire to love and to be loved by Lois, as well as his desire to make his parents proud and protect the innocent people of Earth. We have Luther, who is still back and very clearly motivated by money and pride. He wants people to see him as he sees himself, which is a genius and this incredible brilliant person who can be a puppet master and pull the strings and get what he wants. And then we have Zod, who is motivated by the desire for power over others, going all the way back to the way that he was when he was on Krypton. And the way that those three characters and their conflicting motivations come together, and also the way that some of their motivations try to be tied together for a similar gain with Luther and Zod in their case towards the end of the film uh, once they connect. I think it's really great and it just it drove the story for me and I was incredibly engaged with this one from start to finish, Patrick. I thought it was great. I think it's better than the first movie overall as far as being solid from start to finish with no real dips or or problems. I don't think it's a perfect movie by any stretch of the imagination. It's not, it's not, there are things in it that I think are a little silly. Frankly, Otis is back and I just wish he wasn't a thing because that hurts the movies for me, but whatever. Uh, There's some weirdness in this one too, where it's just like, there's some, some Deus Ex Machina or something, but like some questions I have about like, how did that happen exactly? (laughs) You know, but you throw that out. It's a superhero movie, man. And I had a lot of fun and I, I, Intentionally wanted to save the love situation of this to talk about later, but that's why I love this movie more than anything. So we'll get into that in detail. But the motivations of the characters worked for me in this one in a big way. Good, good, good. I'm glad. My one word takeaway was golden, and I'm really just harkening back to the golden age of comics. I think that when we talk about the first film, I mentioned last week how it hinted at looking back at the golden age of superheroes where you had Superman lifting a truck in action comics. And I think Superman 2 amps this up to the nth degree purposefully. I think we look at the overall story, the way that stakes are pushed up in a way that is uh, exciting, it's entertaining, and I think these are Superman stories that I enjoy the most. Stories that put us in a position where we can pump our fist and say, yes, I love Superman. I love seeing him do this and that. The action sequences, the relationships that we we look at, save Otis, who was not in here very long, by the way. So you had that. He was not very much. He was Thankfully. in the beginning and the end. Yes, very yes. quick. And And then we have this cast of characters that, are hinted at from the first film that pushed the story along as one of the the two major plots. 
But for me, this really does feel old school. It feels old school in the sense that it's 2020 and this movie came out in 1980. So yes, a 40-year-old movie does feel old. But even at the time that it came out, it plays back to those roots of Superman's origin where the audience wasn't asking for much. They weren't asking for a Christopher Nolan take on The Man of Steel. And in some ways, that's fine. I think it's fine for for Lester to do what he did and have some of the sequences take place that they did. Like you, there was definitely some gaps and some tonal shifts here and there. I think that in part that was due to Richard Donner being taken off the project and Lester basically saying, I need to be able to give myself a director credit, so let's reshoot this many scenes in order to get there. But overall, of the Superman movies, this is my favorite because from start to finish, I think we get a com- a, a more complete package than any other ones. I think it's one that has a pretty good balance of seriousness of camp of excitement of drama all kind of mixed in and in an age where these stories these movies were not prevalent i think i have to continue to give it grace and saying that it kind of set the tone it started the superhero genre early on and so it's not going to be as visually appealing or maybe as narratively appealing but for me yeah it's still golden in my mind and I think it's going to be one of those movies that I'm excited to show my son when he's well he's probably old enough at this point to watch this I don't know if he'll get everything but these characters feel approachable they feel like they're they're I won't call them plain but they feel like oh yeah it's Luke Skywalker or it's Darth Vader characters that you can understand you don't have to have complexity to them in order to really appreciate them Zod is Zod Luther is Luther Superman is Superman. All these characters are who they are. And there's nothing really complex about them. And for my money, that's okay. For this type of movie, it's perfectly fine and enjoyable to watch that. Well, from here on out, we're getting into spoiler territory. So if you get a chance to go watch this, uh, it's on HBO Max. If you got a subscription there, check it out. Again, we're talking about the Lester cut. I believe that's the only one on HBO Max. But This will pertain strictly to that one, so be sure to check it out before joining us back here for a fun conversation. That being said, here we go. One of the things I found really interesting about this entry, Aaron, was the fact that we basically used the title sequence to recap the highlights of the first movie, something that we don't see a lot, except in like TV shows where previously on we get, and we understand that because when you're dealing with a serialized story, a serialized well, series, you have to be able to say, hey, here's what you missed. For a movie like this, do you think that was necessary or did it add anything to you or did it feel distracting? It was distracting because we don't see it ever. And it was very weird to see that in front of a film. Oh, you got to remember that this was made in what, 80? 80, 80, 81, something like that. 81, something like that. So there's no internet. There's no, let's just go rewatch the end of the last movie or whatever. It's a lot less accessible for people to catch back up with Superman 1 and the events of that movie before going to see Superman 2 when we're talking about direct sequels. 
And sequels were not nearly the thing that they are today, back in the early 80s, the 70s, the 60s, or whatever. Yes, movies did have sequels. There are stories that were lengthy and had follow-on parts, but it certainly wasn't to the level that we see it today. So you've got to remember and think that audiences are not conditioned at this point to always have the full events memorized. And so I didn't mind it. I It was jarring just because it was new and unexpected. The fact that it happens without dialogue and in the credits is what makes it okay. If it was a section of the film where we basically just recapped everything with no background music and it was like played straight, I guess, if, if they were actually playing the scenes and actually like cutting them together as if it was some really short movie for us to watch, then I think I would have a real problem with it. But because it's integrated into the credits in a way that seems like, oh, hey, we'll just like let you catch up while we're going through this thing that we got to do anyway. It was like kind of cool, to be honest. I don't think if I would have watched Superman one, which I just happened to have watched last week because we talked about it, if it had been a few years I probably wouldn't have had anything negative to say about it at all because I would have thought it was just fine. That being said, Patrick, I definitely don't want this to ever happen again. I don't think it's necessary in this day and age. Uh, it certainly is not needed for us because of the way we have the internet to catch back up, the way we can quickly get to the media and stay plugged into these stories. It's just not something that needs to happen anymore, but it was fine. Yeah, and I think part of that, Aaron, knowing what we know now, is these two films were essentially shot together. It was kind of like The Matrix 2 and 3, you know, shot back to back, or The Lord of the Rings being shot back to back. So you got this holistic narrative. To me, I think that's kind of a, a piece of mystery or kind of an artifact to let us know that there was a grand vision for this franchise, at least for two entries. And I was talking to Don Shanahan offline about this movie in particular and asking him you know, which cut was his favorite. And he and I are kind of in the same boat with we like Lester's more. But to think about it as a long kind of epic when you stitch these two movies together, I think that Lester wanted to capture that. He wanted to remind his audience, not just previously on, but to let them know here's what was introduced and i don't know if that was an homage to richard donner because that was all richard donner footage that we got in the opening credits i think it served as a reminder but equally as much i think it served as a reminder to us as an audience that there was a bigger story being told it's why i think we get that opening sequence of the first one with zod or the zod squad as i call them and then we get that again at the very beginning because we're kind of reminded so it it does serve as a reminder but i think it also serves as a way to say we're telling a big story here and it's important for you to understand what came before it because frankly on its own superman 2 could live without the opening credits it could live without that which i think is a testament to the story itself i mean if you can actually create a, a sequel that didn't depend on its predecessor, that could be good or bad. Christopher Nolan, I think, did that with The Dark Knight. Could you have watched The Dark Knight without seeing Batman Begins? Yes. 
it's better if you've watched the first entry because you get that backstory, you get all that substance. But I think that's what makes movies in franchises so good when they're able to stand on their own. When, just like a comic book run, you can read an issue of Spider-Man independent of the issue before it or after it, knowing that it's just as good, but it gets enhanced because of the previous and next entry. So having that opening sequence, like like you, I don't think is necessary, but I think it's a testament to what Lester was trying to carry over from the first one, which is, this is important to me, and there's going to be some ramifications. And then we get right into Zod and his crew getting exiled to the Phantom Zone. And so we're kind of right back in it by the end of the immaculate credit sequences, which I think is, I think we said last week that it's probably one of the most expensive credit sequences on the planet at that point. It was just really, really expensive to do. So I guess if you're going to throw some things at it, make sure you throw some good things at it. Lois and Clark's relationship starts obviously in the first entry, but this relationship is one of the two main narratives throughout this story and i know that last week you talked about loving their relationship and seeing how it starts and seeing kind of the the birth of the lois and clark relationship so seeing how it plays out here as sort of a significant focal point how did it work for you as this expansion i I love it i mean that's what i love about this movie i think that it's great, and you nailed it when you told me that I would enjoy it because of that, and you were not wrong. I think that it's a very good relationship progression that is shown through the two films. I hate movies and I hate stories where people are shown to have met, and then they are suddenly in love with zero effort put into it, or in bed or whatever the case may be, but like they're just, it's automatic and we get to see enough here of what Lois goes through with Clark and with Superman, both separately and together. And it makes it feel like a natural thing when they're both trying to express these feelings for each other. I also think that when we first meet Clark and Lois back in Superman one, that it's really helpful that we have skipped some time and we are shown these two characters working at the daily planet and already Clark is flirting with her. Like we, we can kind of skip to the point where we know that he's interested in her as a person. We don't have to go through like, Hey, they just met. And then we have to watch all this time that led up to that. We start with them being kind of smitten in different ways with each other. And we get to just watch it get more serious. And so it makes sense what goes down in this one. And frankly, it's a lot of fun. I think that one of my favorite parts of this is the continued touching on Lois and whether or not she knows who he is. And we get to deal with that right off the bat at the Niagara Falls, which is one of the scenes I remember from this movie more than anything and how she starts to pick up on those clues and say, okay, I get it. Like, where are you? Because it's what the audience is saying the whole time. Like, well, 
Clark just disappeared. Duh. Like suddenly Superman showed up. This has been happening over and over and over. Right. And she throws herself into the river. And it's just, it's awesome because, well, it's stupid. First of all, like it's one of the things in the movie that I also think is, is I think I love it thematically. I hate it from as like a realistic plot point. The fact that someone would jump into a river to kill themselves because they're going to believe that you're going to save them is like somebody driving a hundred miles down the road hour or a hundred miles an hour down a highway at a you know big truck and going, okay, God, if you think it's my time to keep going, then make sure that truck moves. It's, it's stupid. Um, what I enjoyed about it is that their relationship here not only gives us the sweet and tender moments later in the movie, which I absolutely connect with, but it gives us these moments where we get to see Clark really be smart. He plays her silly game and he is able to save her using, it's almost like a video game scene, Patrick, where he uses his laser eyes to create this environmental assistance for her via a log where she is saved miraculously by the environment and has no idea it's him and then he gets to actually play the victim in the end by falling in the water and being like oh i can't swim so she goes from thinking that superman is going to save her to saving clark kent the nerd and completely thinking she's ridiculous and it's it's just a beautiful setup for the eventual reveal and eventual like moment of consummation i don't know how else to put it but like where they come together and they decide they're going to love each other and no matter what it, what it takes and she finally knows who he is and all of that and so it makes a lot of sense and i think that his relationship with her driving his decision making throughout this film and being such a, a struggle for him i think this is one of the best parts of that character for me like I think we talked about last week is just the nature of how he has to fight against what he really in his heart of heart wants. He wants to settle down and have a family, but he has a higher calling that does not allow that to happen in a way that is able to keep that person safe. And so he has to sacrifice for the greater good and you can't have a sacrifice that's meaningful, Patrick, unless you have the relationship built in its foundation in which he's actually giving that thing up. That You have to care about the thing that he's giving up to buy the sacrifice. And they do that so well here, in my opinion. Yeah, the the relationship between Lois and Clark is pivotal in this movie. I want to go back to something you said earlier, that there is time that has passed between the first and second entry, not just the duration between you know, movie one and movie two, which I think is like maybe two, three years, there's a comfort level that you hinted at that exists between both Lois and Clark. At the be- Part of the appeal of Superman and their relationship in the original movie is that you have a guy who is fumbling around, who's infatuated with this woman, who's kind of fascinated with her gumption, with her ability to just go after a story and be unafraid yet can't spell for the life of her and that appeals to him she's a strong woman a strong character superman 2 looks at them and allows them to exist as equals and what we have is 
I think as Clark has developed this relationship with Lois, he has earned her respect. Like he is an equal reporter. She still thinks she's better than him for sure, but she's willing to go to Niagara Falls with him for a story. And I think she sees these stories that he's put in between these two entries that we don't know about as being like, okay, he's a legit reporter. He's not just this small town guy that's come in and is trying to make a name for himself. He really is legit. Like he is true to form, a great reporter. The other thing I like, Aaron, is that Lois is consistent in her character. She's always looking for the truth. And when she throws herself into the river, I will say this. In the Donner Cut, she does something similar that's more bizarre. So just leaving it at that. But I don't think it's unbelievable for her because it's not like she's trying to prove that God exists. She, in her gut, is going after truth. And as a reporter, she's willing to do whatever it takes. I mean, good grief. She climbs on an elevator that's connected to the Eiffel Tower. Yeah, me raising my hand along with probably a lot of people that see this movie are like, that's so stupid. What are you doing? That's the commitment of a real reporter who's going after a story. I will never understand that because I'm not a reporter. I'm not willing to go into the fire to get a story. But for her, from the very moment we see her, she's always about trying to get the story. Maybe it's for prestige. Maybe it's for whatever. But the fact is, that's always been her. She's never been weak when it comes to that. Stupid, yes. But weak, no. And I think that consistent with her, we also see Reeves' portrayal of Clark, which is so, so brilliant. I started this movie, and I started laughing out loud when he comes into the Daily Planet, and he gives like this, like, just really bad, suave look to this pretty girl and throws his hat, and it miraculously lands on the coat rack behind them. But he's so awkward with it and to watch him later on at this niagara falls scene where he's genuinely concerned for her but you're right he's trying to maintain his identity he's he, in the in those moments early on he's like oh my gosh this is going to play out later on on a bigger scale which is do i give up my identity do i give up who i am for the sake of a woman in that moment he couldn't see the future i think he was taking a gamble just like she was and he uses that environmental assistance by knocking that tree down with his laser eyes. And then you're right. He awkwardly gets into the water and falls over. Typical Clark Kent, you know, can't keep his balance. What a klutz. And it's both entertaining and very much a, a way to show that this is a portrayal, just like Superman is. And he plays it so well. And it's it has to be that effective because he has to convince her that he is not who she thinks he is even though he is and i think that that scene is is one of my favorites because it does all those things it creates that reinforced idea that lois is lois clark is clark and there's tension there because she wants him to reveal who he is but he refuses to do so and by doing it in a way that doesn't take away from his superpowers. He still has to use them. That's what I think is really interesting, is that he doesn't 
save her from a human standpoint. He does use his powers, but he's not going to change into his underwear and come back and save her because he understands that there's a, a bigger thing that he has on his shoulders. Maybe it doesn't feel as heavy in that moment, but I think Lester's vision, I think, is is hinting that right there for what we see later on. Yeah, and I, and I like that he uses his powers not only for major purposes, but he uses them for enjoyment, too. And I think that that's something that we don't often see in superheroes, because most of us would say that we don't want that. You know, we want our superheroes to... It's like you just you have all of this strength. Well, don't just use it for fun. But when when Clark flies off from the Fortress of Solitude to get dinner and some flowers from the tropics, like a that's kind of dumb. But like also it's incredibly sweet. Like because you can. So why wouldn't you just fly to the rainforest to get these beautiful beautiful flowers? You know. And I think he he expresses himself to her using who he is, which is going to be tied to something I want to talk about when we get to another section here about sacrifice. But I just enjoy that a lot because it wouldn't be natural and their relationship wouldn't be right. And it reminded me of the opening scene where he takes her for the flight. Like he connects with her as himself fully with his powers and uses them as part of their relationship. And even, and as he you know, connects with her when he's not using them as well. And I just think that that gives their relationship that full gamut of the whole, the whole thing together. And the reinforcement of that, Aaron, is the fact that she's the only person that he bends to that enjoyment of his powers, like using it for personal gain, being able to go to the rainforest to get the flowers. It's for her taking her on a flight. It's for her. And there's an incredible amount of trust there, especially from someone who's a reporter who's going to potentially out you if they find out who you are. And you could take it that way. You can interpret his apprehension to reveal to her who he is as a way of kind of saying, yeah, don't trust reporters because they're going to out you. I think it's more selfless than anything else. I think it's about the fact that he trusts her. He cares about her. He trusts her with his identity. And eventually, he makes a choice. He chooses to give up his powers because of his love for her. And it's a big decision. I mean, in the grand scheme of things from mythology, here is a guy who is essentially invulnerable, who is giving that up for the sake of one person. And as big as that is, do you feel like this movie captured that kind of weight? I do. I think that it does a phenomenal job of this. And, you know, it starts in the Fortress of Solitude when it happens. And the fact that it's tied to his mom having to explain it to him and say, you know, that you're going to feel and be hurt like an ordinary man. And there's there's a, the way to it also comes right there with that dialogue where she says, my son, are you sure? And his response is, mother, I love her. That was almost my connecting point, was just that line, mother, I love her, because I think that that encompasses the humanity of every single person on Earth's feelings about love, about irrational decision-making, about 
regardless of the stakes, regardless of the cost, Mother I Love Her is what all of us care about the most of anything on the in the world. Like and so that's what's gonna drive the decision. And so I think that it definitely has the appropriate weight to it. Um, I, you know, I think it plays out really cool and fun with the diner and the way in which he gets his butt kicked promptly. Part of him losing his powers, and I think it, it, it goes well narratively, like plot wise with giving them up to be with her and then going out and immediately realizing that you can't protect her without your powers and then being also needed not only to not be able to protect Lois, but not to be pre- able to protect the earth when it's in danger and then having to immediately deal with the regrets and the dilemma that comes with the decision that you made when you thought you were so sure about that cost. I think that that's what sells it for me. And it makes me wonder about Lois because I'm like, well, does Lois, this is always the curious part for me, Better, If you love someone for who they are and that person makes a change to who they are, do you love them now for who they are? Because they're not who they are. Because she loves Clark Kent slash Superman is who she loved. She loved that person. When he makes the change, he is no longer that person in the way that she fell in love with him, which makes it a really curious decision. And I think it's a, I think it's just expressed in this movie in a way that brought that to my attention because it made me think about it. It made me realize that's real life because that's what happens. How many times do people get married, Patrick? And they're like, it's fine. I'll give up video games when I get married because my wife doesn't like video games. And what happens? It breeds resentment. It breeds problems in the relationship because you're no longer the person that she fell in love with you because you were, that was part of who you were when she fell in love with you. And now you're different and, and it can cause all kinds of issues in relationships. And it, it just, I, I see it coming born out here in their relationship. If it was to continue on and go further, and so I appreciate that about it because it gives the movie depth that I honestly wasn't expecting from just this kind of cheesy old era superhero film. And I, I would agree with you in that it offers depth, but I didn't like the execution of it. And I think it's because it didn't linger long enough. A decision like that, a conversation with his mom and a great line by him saying, but I love her is great. 15 minutes later, he's got his powers back within the framework of the, of the story. We didn't sit long enough with that decision and the impact that it would have. He felt guilty and knew that he couldn't protect her or the rest of the world. And it was, for me, it was almost as if he said, my bad. Can I, can I have a do over after she said, this cannot be undone. And I, I have a real issue with that. I don't have an issue with him not being able to get, or with him being able to get his powers back because that has to happen. But if you would have let this play out for another 45 minutes or whatever, let it be the rest of the movie. 
and let Zod take over and completely decimate the Earth, and then him live with that and live with all those things, that's when I think it would really have felt more weighted. And then you have a third entry that deals with the response to that. It's it's the way I felt about Justice League when we get that moment where Superman, sorry, spoiler for Justice League, Superman comes back and he's evil. And he's evil for 15 minutes and now he's back. No, no, that needs to be something that needs to be wrestled with because as as big as a character as Superman is, when he makes a decision, it's a big decision because it affects the world. The world of Metropolis, the world of DC, because he impacts the world in that way. So I am you know, as a whole, I enjoy the whole sequence. I just think it's way too short. And this is me as an adult now watching this and going, man, come on. I mean, deal with that. Deal with the ramifications and the fallout of not having your powers. And to your point, Aaron, changing for someone else. Like I would love if I had if I had a rewrite, I would say part of that the rest of this movie is Lois harboring resentment. Why did you change for me? And you can't chalk it up to the fact that she can't have sex with the guy because he's Kryptonian and he would destroy her or whatever. I know that's something that people will think. And yes, it's somewhat legitimate. But the bigger issue here is you have to think about the fact that she fell in love with Superman. She she didn't even blink at Clark. And now that she knows they're one and the same, she has to be able to reconcile the fact that they're not one and the same. He is now just Clark. It's not about the powers. It's about that other part of who he is as Kal-El that is just as much who he is as Clark is. Yeah, I mean, she specifically says it. She says, I don't want a bodyguard. I want the man I fell in love with. The man you fell in love with was a bodyguard. He even says, I know that, Lois. I wish he was here. Well, like, they both recognize it. <laughs> they both realize it, you know? So I'm with you. I would have definitely, lo- uh, you know, in a perfect world, I would love a trilogy that played out just like you described just here. I think that would be awesome for the character arc of their relationship to be the thing that ties one through three like that. I also feel like this is part of the movie that has so many of these deus ex machina things that I'm just like, come on, man. So how are they supposed to get out of the Fortress of Solitude, Patrick? He can't fly. So he has transitioned into human in a frozen era of whatever like where they're in the antarctic is where it says later in the film and i guess it's warm in there because she's fine but like the moment you leave you're you're gonna freeze to death you can't fly how do you die so magically the next scene we see they're at some american diner somewhere in antarctica by car car. car, and then by car and then he walks as if jesus through the desert he treks through the snow in antarctica to get back to the Fortress of Solitude later. And I, these are the things I'm just like, come on. And then at the end of, at the end of the film, I don't even know what he's doing because I didn't think that Superman had a man in, men in black, like forgettable, like button where he could kiss someone and their <laughs> memories would be gone. What the hell happened in that moment, Patrick? Tell me because I don't understand it. These are things that do exist in comic book lore. But they're not called upon at all, really. I mean, it's it's a nod. There's a lot of Deus Ex Machina going on in this movie. Of course, there was a lot going on at the end of the first movie, too. 
that I'm saying this as a Superman fan. There are times when I feel like the moments in these movies are just my bad moments. Like my bad. <laughs> can I get a can I get a mulligan for that? And this may speak to the behind the scenes stuff that was going on because I there were a lot of potential things of like decision making that could have a lot of impact. But again, we have to think about the fact that this was an expensive movie to make. These two movies were really expensive. They were way over budget. And we're not living in the age where we have a DCEU or an MCU who are funded by companies willing to put that kind of money into a franchise. They weren't thinking about multiple entries. And as three and four kind of reflect, they went off the rails. And by the end of this, they're like, no, we just need to stop and just stop. Okay, can we get a do-over? I mean, it's almost as if they were saying, can we get a mulligan for this? That doesn't take away from what I think is a great pair of movies. But it also speaks, I think, to the era and the people involved that there were too many chiefs kind of working this thing that there were problems that were trying to be solved. And so as a creative person, I respect that, but the end product suffers because of it. That being said, I think that it plays out from an entertainment standpoint as something that I can rewatch and something that I can forgive because of the fact that it's the early 80s, I guess. Can I say that? Maybe movies weren't that great. Plus, I mean, we're talking about a big studio with European producers putting their two cents. In. I mean, it's just it's just a lot going on. And I think that the result of that exists in what we see on the screen. It does. And I also like the way in which he does get his powers back, because there is an element here of Superman's character that is not often explored, I don't believe. Usually Superman is the overpowered alien. Batman is the intelligent superhero who has to use his brains. And what we see here is Superman outwitting someone that has nothing to do with strength, nothing to do with speed, nothing to do with flight or laser eyes or any of those things. It's doesn't make any sense. And it, like from it's not explored and expressed or, you know, thoroughly examined in a way that we could be like, oh, this is what he did. And it's this great sci fi twist. It's very surface level comic book like, oh, he switched the thing and it worked and did the thing. But the fact that it shows an element of Superman being smart and having to come up with a plan that he figured this out as Clark Kent. He's always Superman. He's Kal-El. But he figured it out while being Clark Kent. I really enjoyed that and thought that that gave an additional kind of level of depth to his mythos that I just haven't really been exposed to in other media. Yeah. When you're limiting yourself to not having the things that you're used to, you have to become resourceful, which I think is a great kind of exploration of Kal-El as a human being. And there are a couple of different episodes of Smallville where that happens and we get to see Tom Welling, who is Clark Kent more so than he is Superman deal with that and kind of live in a world where he is 
like one of us. And, uh, and I, and I think it's, I think it's worth exploring maybe just in a longer kind of time frame, like a TV series or maybe even a multi, a multi faceted or multi episode series, whatever of movies. On the other side of the planet, in a planet called Houston, there is this guy named Zod and he's got Ursa and Nan with him. And this is what drives the other half of the movie. And I think watching Superman 2, I noticed that you had Lois and Clark and then there was a cut to Zod and then there was a cut back to Lois and Clark. So there's this, you probably have the best editing, but there's this great kind of back and forth of like seeing how the relationship between Lois and Clark is blossoming. And at the same time, there's chaos happening. I personally love Terrence Stamp in this. I think that I always like seeing him on screen. I love his voice acting. I think he's just got a nice little presence. The beard is epic. But even seeing them after they break free of the the Phantom Zone glass, how they start interacting with people, beginning with, I guess it's Apollo 18, because that's what we don't ever hear about, this failed mission between the U.S. and the, and the, the cosmonauts. I think that what I enjoy most about Zod is that through Terrence Stamp's performance, he is a character that just is very, just like everybody else, unapologetic about who he is. He's got the same powers as Superman, and instead of trying to save humanity, he wants to rule humanity. And it could come across as very much of a mustache-twirling type thing, but He's a character that doesn't want to just rule as with no uh, with no conflict. He wants an equal. He wants to be able to battle someone. And I think if it was anybody else but Terrence Stamp, Zod would not really be as appealing to me. I don't know that I cared for Ursa or Nan as much. I think they were kind of the equivalent to Miss Tessmacher and Otis, <laughs> played for laughs you know, dialogue or whatever. But for me, I think Terrence Stamp's performance as Zod stood out as, as one of the high points of this movie. Yeah, I think he's good. I think he's definitely able to carry the supervillain flag for the film and the other two play as pretty hokey because he's so good and on another level. And I think, you know, it's partially in the performance, but partially in the direction if you're going to create a character who is as serious as Zod is and then ask his two henchmen to look and, and act physically serious while spitting really cheesy lines of dialogue that don't really feel the same way that they sh- as an Otis should. And Otis comes off as campy on purpose, <laughs> at least. And so silly and goofy, Non and Ursa do not. But yet they kind of act and talk that way it's just doesn't work as well i I didn't care for them as much i I thought that we would have been fine with just zod as on his own and i think that he does a a really good job uh taran stamp and the film i actually love how this plays out if i understand it correctly so i may have missed something but from what i was gathering at the beginning of the film it felt to me like they are released from the Phantom Zone because Clark is throwing a bomb from Paris 
into the atmosphere, and it is what ends up somehow blowing up in a way that releases them, correct? Just tell me that if I'm correct. correct. That is correct. Okay, so to me, that piece makes this movie so much better because Clark is directly responsible, not on purpose, but by utilizing his powers, not even what we would necessarily be able to call recklessly because he doesn't have an expectation that that would be reckless, but indirectly causing this villain to become into existence in his life. It's almost like a faded type of situation here with them coming back to, to fight against him. And so I really, really enjoyed that part of it. I think it, it works so much better for me than them just breaking out on their own and right. coming back. And so I liked that. I thought that them on the moon and the Apollo 18 thing was pretty silly and dumb, but also <laughs> actually kind of funny at times. Like the awful baggy spacesuit. I don't know why my eyes could not get off of this thing, but I was like, what is this person wearing? <laughs> it's, it's, it's really bad. Um, but I liked that this is where they're starting to understand that they have powers. And that's always fun to see. And we got to see Clark kind of go through this in his own way. And here we're seeing them go through it in their very different way where they're killing people right and i think one of the things that the film does a good job of through both the dialogue as they're you know fighting through the city and and specifically on the moon like recognizing their powers the three of them is making the viewer understand and remember that these are just kryptonians when it comes to being on krypton like zod is not a powerful being <laughs> superman kal-el is not a powerful being on krypton he is just a dude on krypton another krypton dude just like zod they're equals like outside of training and intelligence they're not laser eyes you know they're not flying around and all these different things and th that comes only in comparison to americans on earth and i thought that the movie did a good job of making that seem and sometimes we you know consume so much superhero entertainment that it's easy to forget things like that and be like oh yeah dude's always been a super no this is a regular dude you know <laughs> if he was back home but he's not back home he's super powered because of where he's at and i i liked that quite a bit uh and then last i think the way that they go about the what going to the white house i really enjoyed the brief scene where he you know gives him the classic kneel before Zod he, and though the dialogue I think is great in this scene he says I see that you are practicing worshiping things that fly which I thought was pretty poignant he says rise before Zod now kneel before Zod and of course they put the you know distraction president in there first not the real one and Zod calls him out and I love that he's like this man is not your leader because your leader wouldn't do this and the president steps out and says, I'll kneel before you if it will save lies. And then the joke that I made the podcast, what I do now, I do for the people of Earth. Oh, God. And he goes, Zod. Like, as if not, oh, God, oh, Zod. I just thought that that's the performance moment for me in the entire movie when it comes to Zod. Because it just, it just, uh, just captures in an eerie sense how he feels about himself and what his expectations are. So I liked that quite a bit uh, as far as when we have the moments with them on screen. Yeah, there were a couple of things that I wanted to, to bring up. First of all, I, I think the 
the most well-paced section of the movie is seeing Zod, Ursa, and Nan not only discover their powers, but discover Superman. Because you have to remember, they're being broken free of the Phantom Zone, not with the intent to go after Kal-El. They don't know where he is. Like They've been cooped up in this thing for I don't know how long. They don't know. They're just in space. And they're like, what is this? And they go to the moon, and they're discovering things. Uh, Ursa, in particular... She tries to grab dude's patch to to take it, but she's not. I don't think she's intending to kill him. I think she's like, "Oh wow, look at look at what happens here when I do this." Now they're not without remorse, or they're not with remorse. Have no remorse about what they do. They see everything as a threat because to them, the last thing they saw was this council of people, including Jarrell, condemn them to an eternity in the Phantom Zone. And so what we see is them. Getting to Earth, I think it's incredibly hilarious that they call the planet Houston or Houston because they don't know any better. And so we we are in on the joke, but they discovered that. And then they find out about this Superman, you know, and they start realizing, oh, he's one and the same. Kal-El and Superman are the same person. And that amps up Zod's anger because... There's that great line at the beginning where he said, I will come for you, Jarrell, and if not you, then your heirs. Like, he has a vendetta. And for him, this is like Christmas morning. Really great about Terrence Stamp's performance. He's legitimately frustrated that he can't find Superman. If he had found out that Superman was depowered, I guarantee you, Aaron, he would find a way to power him up so that he could take him down. Like, if there was, this would be another great way to extend this story, is if he somehow found Clark or Kalel as a depowered Kryptonian. He said, no, I want to fight you on equal terms. And he found a way to actually give him his powers back. I think that seeing that White House scene, it reminds me that he is a general first. He's not a super powered person. He is a general, which tells me that on Krypton, he had some hole. Like, he was in the military, so he had people that followed him. And it doesn't seem out of the question for him to carry that kind of weight. So to see him really kind of push that on to the president of the United States, and in that one sequence where Clark's watching from the diner, he sees the president say, Superman, if you're out there, come in. And he's like, and he grabs the camera and he says, come find me. I mean, I love it. I absolutely love Terrence Stamp here because he is coming from a place of pure rage. It's not about strategy. It's not about military stuff. It's about I am pissed off and I'm ready to take down the son of Jarrell. And I think that's what leads into the the final third of the movie, which is where I think a lot of the the big action starts. So that's what I wanted to talk about next. Unless well, you have something. I, yeah, I mean, I just I think that. It's interesting because Lex Luthor is the big bad in the first movie, and it's rare that we see a big bad in the first movie come back and play a supporting bad role. It's very strange because he's not even fully pulling the strings. He thinks he is. He somehow knows where the Fortress of Solitude is, of course, and again is able to get there and such. But he is used by Clark. Like I said, he's the puppet. And Kal-El Clark is the puppet master turning the tables and he is used against Zod 
in the end when they're in the fortress in order to trick them. Because without Luther buying into it, he doesn't have the ability to convince them. And so I think that it's really fun way for him to come back in here. And it, and it shows that he's always involved, like in the lore and in the stories of Superman. He's always going to be the villain that is right there somewhere in the background doing something, even if he's not the primary threat at the time. He's assisting the threat. He's kind of he's lurking. And I thought that that's how he felt to me in this film. And I kind of enjoyed that. As long as there's land involved, he's going to be involved. Yeah, apparently, man, he beachfront properties. That's all he's about. Australia. You know, and I love the Richard Nixon. That is an awesome moment. That was really great. And he's like, jazz hands. So good, man. Let's talk a little bit about the action sequences. I personally think that they were amped up for this one. We got several of them, beginning with the Eiffel Tower sequence. We got, of course, the one at Niagara Falls and then uh, several other ones before we get to the big fight in the city in metropolis and i wondered from your perspective did any stand out to you did you enjoy these more than the first entry do you want to talk more about that f- f- fight now or next week when we talk about man of steel so <laughs> here's the thing I, you know I, I couldn't watch it without contrasting it in my head to what happens and because of the narrative and discourse around it both in fandom uh, and also the way that Snyder takes what happens in Man of Steel and uses it to further the story in Batman v Superman. But it was interesting to me that in that in one movie, we have Zod thrown through a building and it completely levels most of these incredible towers, completely levels most of these towers and creates massive explosions and such. And I understand we're in a a world of different CGI, of course. But then in this one, he's thrown through a building and all it does is literally poke a hole in the building and as he goes through and knock a little chunk of, you know, concrete off of the wall. It's so different to watch it now after having seen it blown up. And I just think it's not bad in any way, shape or form. It's a great fight. It's it's fun. And it's comic book accurate for the time for what could be achieved. And I just see it more as, okay, it's cool that we have Man of Steel where we can see it blown up in this bombastic way that we weren't able to experience previously. It doesn't make it better. It doesn't make it worse. I liked both of them, and I was surprised, because part of me thought, I'm not going to enjoy this because it's not big and bad. It's a it's an appropriately sized action sequence for the movie that it's in. Yes. I think that there are... It's my favorite sequence, not of like any Superman movie, but of this movie. I think it's the one that feels the most correctly edited the correctly paced of the action sequences there there are some that argue it goes on a little too long and i wouldn't disagree with that but i like the little quiet moments that what we see is lester lester loves to throw in jokes like he i think what he does and as a as an apologist for superman 3 i will tell you that he ramps this up significantly for that entry because i think he values that part of superman that in some ways was in contrast to Donner's vision, which I think created that weird rift and what we see on screen. But we have like these fun action moments and then these small pauses where you see Non, who is just caged by this tower, the cell tower, you know, with the cell tower, there's no cell phones back then, but this, this electrical tower. And there are these little pockets of humor 
that exist, there's not a lot of explosions. There's not a lot of great choreography necessarily, but it's enough for me to see a lot of what Lester, I think, is trying to do, which is to show the power that, that I'll just shrink it down to Zod and Superman, that both of them have as Kryptonians. It also shows the love that the people of Metropolis have for him, for Superman, enough to want to <laughs> just in futility attack these three Kryptonians. And of course, Lester plays that for laughs. He gives them the big kind of blow, you know, blowing them into the kiss like she did with the helicopter early on and just blows them away, literally. I think that for my money, that's probably the best of the action sequences because it captures all those things. And of course, then we move to the Fortress of Solitude where it's more isolated. I think that is more digestible, but I think the, the Metropolis fight sequence is more entertaining for my money. I also do enjoy the other ones though. I think that the Paris one is fun from a Superman standpoint. I think it's silly that Lois is, is riding up underneath the escalator elevator thing. And I think that that's completely unrealistic and it, makes it hard for me but it reminds me also of that carnival not carnival but like state fair ride that i absolutely despise where you like go up and it just drops like it just plummets to the ground that's what it reminded me of and i was like that's insane but it's also interesting because you're like focusing on what and, and this is just a knock on the filmmaking at the time but like you're watching her face as she's literally plummeting at however many hundred miles an hour whatever straight to the ground with the expectation she's gonna die and you don't see it on her face at all like that's not there she's just like uh, you know like that's not how you react in that moment at all and so it kind of like come on so it, it it's hard for me to feel that way about that the niagara one that's fun that's cool uh the kid falling off the it's just it, the cgi lack it's it's good for the era it's still not great in moments at times you know for me the fight in the city with them and the way in which some of the like explosive rockets are caught in their hands and thrown back and just the creative way in which they did the fight is fun to see, but it's not particularly entertaining from a ooh standpoint. It's more like a mmm okay standpoint. Uh, so that's kind of how I felt about the action overall. But of course, it does culminate in the one bigger fight with the two of them that I think worked really well. Good stuff. Well, let's move into our connecting points as we finish off this episode. I'll go ahead and let you start, Aaron. Okay, so my connecting point is the reveal of Clark to Lois of who he actually is. And it's really just that moment. I love how much it's been teased leading up to the moment, especially with those awesome Niagara events that we talked about where she's trying to kill herself to cause him to come out and save her. But he's too smart. And does it without doing that. And then later, when it actually happens, the way that that they're having a conversation, they're talking about this, and it kind of comes back to this moment earlier in in the movie where she tells Clark that she wants to see him. When he sees something that he wants, he has to really go for it, just like she does. And I think about that because I know that that's on this character's mind as he's in this moment with her and he puts his hand in the fire and lets her notice clearly lets her see that he's not being harmed and essentially 
revealing himself to be Superman. And then the overly dramatic moment of taking his glasses off as if that was some magical thing in which now she realizes it's him. And I think that what really makes this work for me, Patrick, is what she says to him about how maybe he didn't want to reveal himself with his mind, but maybe he wanted to with his heart. And I love that because it's like an unconscious act that he chose to do that. He didn't think it through completely. He didn't go into this incredible, you know, problem solving thing where he was going to figure it all out before it happened in the heat of the moment. He knew what he wanted. He made a choice and he was going to just have to live with it. And that was his heart. And he followed it for better or for worse. And she recognizes that. And it's just really sweet. It's a really great soft moment that is balanced out with the comedy and the action in the movie at different points. And he says, we'd better talk, which I think is awesome way to like, like, you don't know what to say in those moments. You know what I mean? And she just says, I'm in love with you. And he says, then we better, we really better talk. <laughs> and I think that it's awesome. It's so naturalistic. This relationship it feels real to me in a way that so many manufactured comic book romances don't. They feel dramatic and blown up into these quote unquote big loves, Patrick, where we have big romances, you know, Cleopatra and Alexander or whoever, like Mark Anthony, sorry, the, but like big big name romances. And instead of that, and they, and you know, if people say to you, Clark and Lois, you might think that's a big romance, but this is a small moment that we see it play out in. And it just was really touching to me. It's a good moment. And I think that it sets the table for what we see next, which is my connecting point later on. He makes the choice. He goes to the diner, he gets beat up. And we have this kind of expediated series of moments where he is questioning the choice that he made and the, uh, the ramifications for that. And as dumb as this is of him walking back to the Fortress of Solitude, I think it's a nice little dramatic moment. Shows that he's human, that he has to suffer for a while, making that long trek back to the Fortress. And then he gets to the Fortress and it's like depowered. Almost. I don't know really what's happening here, but there's a, a line. He says, Father. He yells, Father! Who we never hear from. I mean, Jarrell is gone. I don't know why. And in that moment, you really hear this regret that he has for the decision he made. Not because he was regret he was never regretting loving lois like he still loves lois but i think he regrets the decision he made because it affects so many more people than just her it affects the people that he's been protecting and he he's looking for redemption he's looking for grace and he, of course he finds it in the green <laughs> glow stick and of course then we see a couple of scenes later he's returned and 
as much as I can criticize that, I think it's an important moment because as someone who wanted to be human, I think that that was a very human emotion to feel of regret and remorse. And credit to Christopher Reeve for performing in that moment because Cal was regretful, not Clark, not Superman, but Kal-El was. And wishful thinking aside, I think it led to me appreciating the fact that it's part of his journey as a Kryptonian living on Earth to have to understand the weight of his decisions, that they affect more than just him. They affect more than just him and the personal relationships he has. They affect the world. And I think that's a concept about Superman that can be very much criticized because nobody wants a superhero that can be involved in everything. You've got to have a limitation with your superheroes, which is why I think half of the Marvel Universe lives in New York. And yeah, I mean, he's primarily in Metropolis, but he has the power to go anywhere, to space, underwater, wherever. And seeing this moment with him feeling that human emotion of regret and remorse, I think connects me to him. It connects me to him as a person, even if it's a Kryptonian depowered person. And I think there's there's an appeal to that, which I think is it can be it can be lost. So it was a nice quiet moment. Well that'll wrap up this episode of Feelin' Film. Coming up next in our Superman Trifecta is Zack Snyder's Man of Steel, which bears some interesting similarities to both of these entries we've been discussing for the last couple of weeks. We'll probably get more into that next time, so be sure to come back next week as we discuss that. Aaron, thanks for another great conversation, and we'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.